Hello and welcome to another episode of the African Fiveside Podcast, brought to you by the good folks over at AfricasAcountry.com. Uh, the African Fiveside Podcast is a podcast in which we explore the African continent via the prism of its favorite pastime, which is quite obviously football. Um, every five episodes are split into a different thematic arc, which we call Match Days. And Match Day One, which is the current uh, Match Day that you're listening to, this is the third episode of Match Day One. In this one, we're exploring different African heads of state and their relationship with football, their different sporting policies and politics. So far, we've profiled Namdi Zikwe, Nigeria's first pre- president, Ahmed bin Billah, which is Algeria's first president, and the Libyan leader, Mohamed Gaddafi. They were on our bench. Our goalkeeper for our African five-a-side, first African five-a-side team is the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Remember, he's tall, charismatic, a good communicator. And now, uh, we're naming our defender. And we're going no further than one of Gamal Abdel Nasser's really good friends, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, also known as Osejefo, uh, which means savior in the local Ghanaian dialect. So without further ado, let's delve in. So Dr. Kwame Nkrumah is obviously not born a doctor. He's born into uh, a modest family in what was then known as uh, the Gold Coast, now currently known as Ghana, at the time was under uh, British rule. Um, not too much known about him as a, as a child, but as a young man, he becomes uh, increasingly politically active and he wants to pursue an education in North America, not unsimilar to the Nigerian president, Namdi Azikwe, who we already spoke about. And so Dr. Kwame Nkrumah goes to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania in 1935. Um, there he reads, you know, a lot of literature of socialism. He's reading Marx. He's reading, reading Lenin. He's reading a lot of black African nationalism, too, um, especially, especially Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey has a, a real profound influence on Dr. Kwame Nkrumah uh, throughout the rest of his life, really. Uh, and in 1945 in Manchester, uh, he helps organize the Fifth Pan-African Congress. And those who are very familiar with the Pan-African movement will tell you that this was the seminal moment really in the movement because prior congresses had been a little more tame, uh, whereas this one was more radical in a positive sense. It was much more about reclaiming autonomy, independence, not just in Africa, but in the Caribbean uh, and around the world, really. Nkrumah returns to Ghana in 1947. He remains politically active there. He creates a political party named the CPP, uh, which is uh, the political party which actually ends up being the only party in Ghana uh, later on when he's president. Um during this time, he's imprisoned because of his political activity by the colonial authorities. But in 1951, he's voted prime minister. Um, and he remains prime minister until Ghana becomes independent in 1957. So that's just really a quick, short summary, a political bio, sort of. And now we're going to really delve into the kind of footballing, structuring policies that Kwame Nkrumah puts into place uh, after independence. The Black Stars became the ambassadors of Ghana spreading Nkrumah's gospel of pan-Africanism. So now Dr. Kwame Nkrumah is prime minister of Ghana. He sees what Dr. Uh, Namdi Azikwe is doing in Nigeria with uh, how he used media, how he used football to sort of galvanize uh, the Nigerian population. 
And Dr. Kwame Nkrumah said the same thing. And the Ghana and Nigeria have always had this long-standing rivalry from the 50s. Uh, it starts with something called the Jalco Cup, which is uh, you know sponsored by, I want to say, Pneumatic Tire Company. Um, it's just this tournament between Nigeria and Ghana every single year. Uh, Ghana go on tours around Europe in the 1950s. So they were quite clearly, in West Africa, one of the most advanced teams in terms of football. And Dr. Kwame Nkrumah sees this and he sees that football can be a unifying tool because independent Ghana is still a, a kind of divided. Um, there's a little bit of inter-ethnic strife. And so Dr. Kwame Nkrumah sees football as a unifying tool on two levels. Number one, perhaps it can unify Ghana nationally, but perhaps also it can unify Africa on a continental level. So Dr. Kwame Nkrumah... Uh, puts the financial effort in. They hire some European coaches who are probably more fitness coaches than football tacticians. Um, they're sending players abroad, players like Charles Jemphy, uh, Ghana's probably best player in the 1950s, also captain of the Ghanaian national team. And later on, he's going to become uh, the coach. He spent some time in Germany over at Fortuna Dusseldorf. Um, and in 1960, he returns and he becomes coach. Um, around this time as well, uh, in 1960, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah appoints Ohene Jan as sporting director. And for people that aren't familiar with Ohene Jan, this was one of the most important appointments in African football history. Ohene Jan is um, one of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's closest political advisors, and he's made director of sport, which sometimes can be an unimportant position. But in Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's mind, this was quite an important position. Um, First of all, they, they rename the Gold Coast to Ghana, and now they need a good name for the national team, and they name them the Black Stars. So Ghan the Ghanaian flag obviously has a black star in, in the middle of it. And this goes back to Marcus Garvey and the Pan-African teachings of, of Marcus Garvey that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah learned in the United States, because the, uh, Dr. Marcus Garvey, I don't know if he's a doctor actually, but Marcus Garvey has the Black, black Star shipping line, which is um, really a symbol of black entrepreneurship and repatriation to the African continent and, and liberal and financial uh, emancipation. And Dr. Kwame Nkrumah thinks this is a very powerful symbol. He puts it on the flag and now they call their national team the Black Stars, which is pretty significant because I've been looking at uh, all the different national team mascots in Africa. We have 32 of 54 teams are animals. Uh, we have... Uh, I think seven of them are eagles, three of them are elephants, um, but there's only one which is Pan-African, you know, like take a team like Tunisia. Tunisia is the Carthage eagle, something that's obviously Carthage is, you know, the, the old Roman Empire that was in Tunisia. The eagles, is, you see eagles in Tunisia, <laughs> but the black stars, that's like a symbol that's Pan-African. It's bigger than Ghana. And I think that's something that Ghana deserve a little bit of merit for. They have a Pan-African national team mascot. They're the only ones on the continent that have something of the sort. So as Ohane Jan is, uh, is made director of sport, immediately they try to integrate into the Confederation of African Football. They asked to host the 1963 Africa Cup of Nations. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah goes to CAF and says, hey, why don't we have uh, an African cup for the clubs? Because... Europe has them for Real Madrid is playing. They're, they're European champions. 
why don't we have something here? And he pays out of his own pocket for the creation of the African Clubs Championship, which was known actually as the Kwame Nkrumah Cup, which later becomes the CAF Champions League. And as a side note, that's one of the reasons why, you know, like sometimes I get sad when I see things like the African Football League, because even if it's a great idea, even if it was the best idea in the world, it doesn't have that kind of history, you know, that weight that, you know, the, the CAF Champions League does, because that's, you know, the, the successor to the Kwame Nkrumah Cup, you know, and that's sentimental, you know. Anyways, um, Ghana win the 1963 Cup of Nations on home soil. They win the 1965 African Cup of Nations in Tunisia. They go back to back. Just the second team to do that after Egypt in 57 and 59. They qualify for the 1964 Summer Olympic Games. They get good results against Argentina, Japan, but losing the quarterfinals to Egypt. And they probably would have been the first sub-Saharan African team to qualify for a World Cup in 1966 were it not for the fact that they led a protest and boycotted uh, the FIFA World Cup, as did the rest of the African continent. But really, it was Ohene Jan from Ghana and the Ethiopian uh, football administrator, Idnikechu Tesema, that were at the forefront of this. And what you have to understand was that prior to 1970, so the very next World Cup, Africa didn't have a guaranteed place in the World Cup. So they would have to qualify, and when they get to the final round of qualification, they would have to play either a Spanish, uh, sorry, either a European team, like uh, Morocco had to play Spain, for example, I believe in 62. Or uh, you had to play an Asian team uh, at, other, at other times. So Africa felt like this is outrageous. Our teams are good enough to qualify. Uh, the fact that we only have one place after such grueling qualification is, is unjust. Um, and so they, they fought it, they fought it, they fought it. And they finally get their guaranteed place in 1970. And this is, you know... Um, it sets a standard, really, because from 1950 to 2000, 2010, what you'll end up seeing, and this is, I think, a legacy of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and Nohane Jen, is that African countries start voting as a bloc to advance their interest, like they did at 1966 when they boycotted the FIFA World Cup. They were not at all afraid to say, you know what, we're going to stick together, we're going to be unified to advance the interest of African countries and the African continent. It's not the case anymore, really, um, since FIFA sort of took CAF under its wing. CAF lost a lot of its autonomy. There are other geopolitical factors that have made it so that African countries are not as united anymore. And it's not the same anymore. And that, that makes me a little sad. But um, I do think that this is a really important moment in, in African football history. And when people ask me sometimes, why do you support African countries at the World Cup? You know, because I'll support an African country over any team around the world. For me, it comes back to this. And I think this is why, you know, other continents in Asia and in Europe, it's rare to see, like, I don't know, like a Scottish guy supporting England or a Scottish guy supporting the Netherlands over, I don't know, any other team. You know, they'll, they'll just support their own nation. But as Africans, we the way we talk about, you know, African participation, the way we all support African teams, it all starts because... At our hearts, we know that we always had to stick together for the success of all of us. And so uh, that's really what it comes down to. And I think that that's, some, that's the legacy that Ohene Jan deserves credit for. So in addition to investing in their coaching with Charles Gianfi, uh, Ghana had, you know, like a real great generation of stars. Players like uh, Ben Achampong, uh, Edward Agri-Finn, uh, Wilberforce Mfum. 
but most importantly, Baba Yara. Um, these players were superstars, and unfortunately, you know, we didn't have television, we, radio was scarce, and they're probably underrated overall uh, at a historical level. But a player like Baba Yara, for example, who the stadium in Kumasi is still named after to this day, in my opinion, I mean, just reading con- you know, his contemporaries and their testimony, he was probably a top 20, top 30 African player of all time. Baba Yara, was, he's, he's the king of wingers. Look at his goal-scoring record online. Could dribble past anybody. Scored a lot of great goals. Um, and unfortunately, he gets into this... Well, he's involved in an accident and he becomes paralyzed at the age of 26 years old and dies a few years later. It's tragic. But he's probably... Probably the best Ghanaian player of all time. If not, he's definitely top five. At least that's the way people speak about him. And uh, and it's funny, his story and other the all these stars... I mean, in Ghanaian football, they lead to the creation of a club, an elite club, which I think is also uh, a fascinating legacy of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's. In uh, in the early 60s, he creates a club called the Real Republicans. And I think Dr. Kwame Nkrumah believed that this was his opportunity to create kind of like a political Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> um, he would create a club that would win the Champions League that he created as well. <laughs> and uh, this would be a, a way for Ghana to show their soft power and to advance their hardline Pan-African uh, politics. Because the Ghana, even the Black Stars, you know, they would be a sort of diplomatic tool of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. And whenever he would travel to countries, he would often bring the national team with him. And it's a way, his way of flexing, sort of. Um, and so he creates the Real Republicans, and on their jersey, they also have OOC, Osajifo's own club, uh, named, so basically Nkrumah's own club. And what they do is they poach two players from each of the clubs around the Ghanaian League, the two best players, of course, and they create this elite club. You can see how that's going to piss people off, <laughs> and the people it pissed off the most was Asante Kotoko. Uh, this is a club that represents the Ashanti people ethnicity, not just the, the city of Kumasi. Um, it's a club in which, you know, the, the king of the Ashanti people is a, is a patron of the club. Um, you know, the, the motto of the club, the, 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 the logo, the, the porcupine, this is like a very symbolic animal in, in Ashanti culture. So it's a very, it's a, a club that's close to people's hearts and people feel like they're represented by it. And all of a sudden, you know, the state is creating a club and they're stealing your best players. Players like Baba Yara. Baba Yara was at Ashanti Kotoko and then he goes to Real Republicans. And this is, a, I love this anecdote because this is one of, for me, uh, one of the more beautiful stories in, in football in general. Baba Yara leaves Ashanti Kotoko with all that he means to those people and all that that club means to those people. He goes to Real Republicans, and in their first match back, you can imagine how <laughs> how pissed off they were. You could see it with like Mathieu Valbuena when he went back from uh, Marseille to Lyon, or very recently in the Champions League when Gianluigi Donnarumma went back from uh, with Paris Saint Germain going back to AC Milan, and you know the supporters throwing cash at him. You can imagine that it was a very similar atmosphere in Kumasi that day. Uh, that Kotoko fans were pissed. 
how could Baba Yara go, you know, and, and play for these real Republicans and, you know, we're more than a club kind of. And real Republicans smash Kotoko. They win like 4-1 or something like that. And Baba Yara, I think, scores two goals or two assists. And by the end, they're just applauding him because he's playing such beautiful football that they ju- they're just overcome. And you see that, you know, a lot of hatred and animosity from football players, I mean, for football supporters, usually it's because we're hurt, you know. And I think that's what happened with the Kotoko fans. But eventually, they were just so overcome by the beauty of his play, his dribbling, his goals, his assists. They just ended up applauding him by the end of the match. And that's, for me, a special, special moment <laughs> in football. But that just goes to show you the quality and the caliber of players um, and the mental fortitude that they had. A few weeks after Ghana won the 1965 African Cup of Nations, uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah is deposed in a coup d'etat as he's out of the country, and uh, Ghana don't win another AFCON until 12 years later. Um, but they're never really back to that golden age that they were in um, from 1962 to 1966, really until the 2006 to 2010 teams um, that did so well at the World Cup. Um, but because of all this investment that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah puts into football, uh, there's no doubt that he deserves his place in our African five-a-side team. Um, we're going to put him as a defender, and uh, I don't think anybody can uh, contest the fact that he's very deserving of his place. So that's it for this episode. Um, if you're interested in the history of Ghanaian football, I'd like to recommend, I mean, there's so many great Ghanaian journalists, but p- people like Sadiq Adams, Gary L. Smith, or especially Fifi Anaman, who's written a biography of Charles Jamfi. He's also written a lot on his personal medium blog about the history of Ghanaian football. Um, also, if you have some time, I'd highly advise you to check out Africa as a Country this week. We have two pretty great articles, one on uh, youth demographics and how they'll affect Nigerian politics by Afolabi Adekayoja, and another one on how Guinea's former president nearly broke out of prison by Nomi Dave. So that'll be all for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, we have a football roundup, African football roundup coming out on Monday. And next week, we'll continue uh, naming our five-a-side team. So that's it. Thanks for listening and peace. Peace.